Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. I'm sure we could come up with examples of brands who fell into this, where there were spontaneous communities that grew up around their brand. But you can't rely on being lucky. Like if this is an important part of your strategy, like just as you say, you've, you've got to have a plan for it. And there's clearly also a whole group of people that would love the image that they project by owning a Ferrari, but actually either they never drive the bloody thing or, you know, they can't get out of the thing because they're too old or whatever it may be anyway. They look out for each other, right? If you own a Jeep, there's the the Jeep wave. Jeep owners will wave to each other on the freeways. Yeah, I've got a Jeep in Sarasota, and I can't believe the amount of people that, that wave to you. And you think to yourself, why are they waving? When I first got one, I, I think, why are they waving at me? Ryan, we've got a pickle. Good, let's hear it. Love pickles. Uh, pickles are business problems, if you recall, and uh, Irene Bread has wrote uh, Beard. <laughs> Irene Bread. <laughs> you got pickles on the brain, Colin. Um, uh, Irene son, my... Bread and Sally Ham <laughs> and John Cheese all wrote together. Yeah, I'm sorry, Irene. My, my apologies. Uh, I'm trying to read things too quickly. Anyway, um, so the pickle is, is I can't speak correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I have no and solution. I run a podcast and have been for six years. <laughs> I have no solution for that. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Irene uh, wrote to us basically saying uh, that she's starting her own company, going to leave and start her own company, and she's always believed in a strong brand. But how does she, how does she plan what people take away from the brand? Okay. So, you know, the good thing is that she's starting off with the end in mind, I guess, which oh, is yeah. what's, the, great. what's the takeaway rather than just pick a name and go, yeah, that sounds a good idea and you know, going on with it. So I know you teach on this stuff, don't you? So um, what, what's, your, what's your thoughts? I'm so glad you asked, Colin, because I have opinions. You do? I do. I do. This lucky, is the reason you're on the show, mate. <laughs> It'd be very boring if you didn't. <laughs> no, I, I have I have opinions about branding, and I'm I'm happy to share them. And unfortunately, people are are stuck here listening to me. And, and the good thing is that Irene, he may, Ryan may have opinions. It's just they may not be the right opinions. And I'm no, here to determine never whether that. that's you, the case. Rewind and listen again. I never claim my opinions were worth anything. <laughs> The first thing, and I, I think that uh, Irene is already on the right path, I think she's thinking about this appropriately, but not everybody does, so I will flag this as a warning. Uh, the first thing to remember about brands is that brands uh, are tactics that we use. So um, I'm a big believer in the distinction between strategy and tactics. You need a goal, right? You need something, some way that your company is planning on delivering value to customers, and that involves choosing your target customer and positioning your offering and figuring out what the source of value is. 
all of those things need to come first. You need to know what those things are because your brand shouldn't be just a clever name. It shouldn't be a really cool, fun logo. Your brand is a tactic. It's a way of creating and communicating value to your customers. And so it's just a tool. And so if we create our brand independent of our strategy, we're leaving a major tool on the table instead of actually using it to deliver value. So yes. That's, yes. that's my first opinion. Yeah. So I, I think I, I, I here's a question I've, I've never asked you before. When did brands first come about? Because I was when? just sitting here thinking about, you know, the Victorian days of, that's right. of, you know, where you had, I don't know, Smith and Son. And it wasn't a brand, it was just the name of a company. So by definition, it became a brand. That is a brand, yeah. Um, No, the first brand that I'm aware of historically was an English uh, tea company. Um, And they did exactly what you said, which is they started marking their product so that people would know where it came from. Um, And so branding, as I understand it, the, the historical records that I've, you know, looked at uh say that that's that was the first known instance so it, it does come from england originally but yeah so that we can think about brands as happening in different stages historically and the earliest instance of it is um just as you say where companies would kind of mark where something came from as coming from them so just kind of this is the branding in the same way you would brand cattle where it's you know we're just we're marking this as coming from us or owned this by is us. mine oh yeah yeah, it's provenance, um, so that it, it signals some kind of level of uh, comfort or of quality so that if something's terribly wrong, you know where to go to. More recently, as we think about brands, they can actually create value. Yeah. Customer. So over and above the, the quality of the product itself, we could hold that constant, but if one has a better brand, then people might actually derive additional value from that. What's the model? I know you have a a model and then we can run straight into it. Great. Okay. So when thinking about the sources of brand value, what you want people to take away from it, I would encourage you with your strategy in mind, once you know who that target customer is and and what value you're trying to provide for them, think about the, the different sources of value that you can provide to the customer through your brand. So I've got a framework that has, that I teach that has four different levels on it. Sometimes it's called the brand ladder because you can think of this as running from most concrete up to most abstract in terms of sources of value. So at the lowest level, there's a functional value. And then we've got like emotional or psychological value, social value, and then lifestyle or self-expression value for the four levels. We're gonna walk through this framework and I'll kind of give you examples uh, at each of these levels and we can talk about how brands can migrate between them. I wanna emphasize there's nothing like magic about this framework. Uh, there are other people who have proposed other similar frameworks. Uh, you sent me a report from uh, Forrester, and they identified a different set of values associated with brands. So brands can have economic value, according to them, or functional value, or experiential value, or symbolic value. And you yeah, can see there's yeah. a fair bit of overlap between those two distinctions. Yeah, I mean, we were involved in, we were interviewed and stuff for for that bit of work that Forrester did. When I read it, I thought, yeah, this is the same stuff. So it's different labels, but exactly on the same lines. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big believer in frameworks. I think they're, they're really powerful. They help us organize our thinking. They 
uh, make sure that we don't like forget certain types of information in our decision making. I'm also not doctrinaire about frameworks either, though. I don't think like this is the one framework that must be used. You know, if you're familiar with Forrester's framework um, and feel more comfortable with it, great. I, I don't see any problems with it at all. I think that it can work as well. So. But we're going to use mine since I'm here. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Let's go through each of the four levels. And I'm going to use Harley Davidson as our example of, of this. So right. at the lowest level, there's the functional value of the brand. You can think of this as like the signal value of the brand. So I want to buy a high quality, high performing motorcycle, for example, but I don't know a lot about motorcycles and I don't have the time or the knowledge to be able to like disassemble the engine of a motorcycle and make sure that it's like going to perform well. So instead I can rely on this quality signal of the brand. So does Harley Davidson have a re reputation for making high quality motorcycles that will perform well and are dependable and reliable, all that kind of stuff. All right, so that's one, that's one type of brand value is this just signal of quality. And so that's, that's our functional level. Good. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say functional, let me let me dive into that a little bit. Are you talking also about sort of the the function of the product or the service as well? Yeah, in terms of like which attributes it has. So. Yeah. So in other words, you tend to look at it, you tend to look at the world through a through functional eyes. So in other words, it's a bit about how fast the processor is or when you were talking about Harley Davidson, I was thinking of how how loud the the bike is or that type of thing. A, a more maybe I'm stumbling over words. It's more sort of product related. Yeah, uh, it's, no, it's an excellent question. So the way that I would pull this out and um, see if you agree or have a different perspective. Sure. I think the primary value of a brand is as this signal for attributes that are difficult to observe. Right. So if you're most interested in processor speed, it kind of doesn't matter whether it's made by Apple or by Compaq or by IBM, because you can read the specs on processor speed and compare them all directly on that attribute. And so if that's your primary means of decision making, then the brand is going to matter less in your choice. If it's an attribute like kind of reliability or coolness then those are, are harder to observe directly. And so then the usefulness of the brand as a signal for those is going to be more powerful. So where would you put something like, say, they have a reputation as an advanced chip provider? Or, or advanced chip manufacturer? So in other words, it, it's something, and this is where I'm, I'm probing this is it's something that's functional it's a sort of it's about the product but you've still got a reputation or a brand image that's a, around that I mean I could argue Apple has got a reputation for easy to use intuitive systems yeah and that's one of the attributes that that people like about them yeah so um I think to the extent that people can directly observe those attributes, they don't need to rely on the brand because they can directly observe them. So if, if you can read the, the specifications of the chips, then it doesn't matter what the reputation is. I think for a lot of stuff that we buy, we don't have the time, we don't have the interest, we don't have the education to dig into that stuff. 
Like I, I use my computer literally every day. I don't remember what the specs are of it. And if you showed me the, the specifications for microprocessors, I, I wouldn't really. So I rely a lot on the reputation when evaluating that. A different customer might not have to. Yeah. So this goes back to the, your first point, which is clearly correct, which is who's your customer? Yes. And what do they value? Because if they value speed and if they value processing power or whatever it may be, then that's the thing that you need to be thinking about. If they value uh, the system being intuitive, et cetera, et cetera, then that's a different kettle of fish. Yeah. And I mean, even customers who value speed, I think we might further segment. There are some customers who have the expertise and the knowledge to be able to assess speed at the level of the processor power and can look at those numbers and say, this is the level of speed I want. I think there are other customers who like want a fast computer, but don't really know how to assess that clearly. And so they're going to rely on the reputation of the brand as having high performance. So I, I think that even at the level of the attributes, but yes, it does. It gets back to who's your customer and, and what are they looking for? Yes. Yeah. Good. Okay. We're going to spend hours just talking about this one thing. So I'm going I, to I literally on do. Because it, yeah. It's making me think of Ferrari cars and stuff like yeah. that, but that's a different kettle of fish. No, I, I think that's, that's another example, right? So Ferrari has customers who know the exact horsepower of every model of car and make their decisions across brands in that way. They also have customers who just want something that is fast and that seems fast and that feels fast. And the brand communicates a lot of that. Sure. I saw uh, something that was posted on social media a little while ago. When you retire, you buy yourself a Ferrari. But when you retire, you can't get out of the bloody thing. <laughs> so it was it was making me just think there about, and there's clearly also a whole group of people that would love the image that they project by owning a Ferrari, but actually either they never drive the bloody thing or, you know, they can't get out of the thing because they're too old or whatever it may be anyway. So uh, we're going to talk about an example that's very close to that in just right. a minute or two. Okay. Uh, you're absolutely right. So we've got functional value. That's kind of the lowest, the most concrete. Yep. Uh, we can then ladder up from there and a little bit more abstract source of value is what I'm, I'm going to call uh, emotional or psychological benefits. And so for Harley-Davidson, here's this great quote from the former CEO uh, of Harley-Davidson. He says, we give the possibility for a 43-year-old accountant to dress in black leather and ride through town and scare everybody, <laughs> which is an emotional benefit of the brand. You yeah. feel differently about yourself when you yeah. are on a Harley-Davidson. Like it just, yeah. you, you get this emotional rush from it. You might feel tougher. You might... And that's a benefit of the brand. Like some people feel, yeah. so they've actually done studies on this where people exposed yeah. to the Apple logo perform better on tests of creativity than people who are exposed to the IBM logo. That's why I'm so creative, mate. Yeah, because, that's why you, you fake know. creativity very, very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we, we think differently about ourselves um, when we're yeah. surrounded by some of these these brands. It's um, funny, actually, you say that because... Um, I always remember my son um, when uh, when he was young. He wanted to buy these. He wanted me to buy these boots for him, soccer boots. Okay, mm -hmm. that were called Predators at the time that <laughs> David Beckham used to wear. Okay? Very aggressive. Yeah, and they were they were expensive. Yeah. Okay, uh, and he was about 
10 at the time, I suppose, something like that. Uh, anyway, long and short of it is I was saying to, you know, you said dad, I want these predator boots and I'm saying, son, you know, they won't let, make you play any better. You know, I mean, let's, I was trying to put my logical, rational yeah. hat on. Yeah. And he, he was saying, oh, but they're really great. Son. I said, look, son, the only thing they're going to do is, you know, you're just going to feel more confident in them. And therefore, because you feel more confident, I started thinking, yeah, he's going to feel more confident than them. He's going to therefore play better. He's going to think he's better than he than he actually is. So I ended up buying them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's... That's to that point is, yeah. is, you know, because you think of it and because you believe that you're now wearing these boots that will make you play better, then you do play better. I, that, it, that's exactly that value that brands can give to people um, in certain instances. Yeah, it's a great example. Okay, so we've got functional, we've got emotional or psychological. The next one up is uh, social. So this is where brands allow you to be part of a community. So going back to Harley-Davidson, there are all of these Harley-Davidson like meetups. There are all of these like yeah, yeah. rallies. Hog, hog rallies or something yes. they call them, don't they? Where like people come from all over. There's, there's one in South Carolina that I'm familiar with. There's one in um, North Dakota or South Dakota. Like kind of the entry fee is that you you ride a Harley. Like <laughs> this is a place for Harley brand owners. I knew a guy in college who owned a Harley Davidson. There are rider groups um, of people who have nothing more in common with each other than that they own the same brand of motorcycle. And they'll just kind of form these spontaneous gangs and just go riding together. So he said um, he was a member of one of these groups. And a lot of times they would just say, well, let's meet at like mile marker 57 on this road at this time. And so he just he got there a little early and he pulled over to the side of the road waiting for the other people in his group. He said he was there for less than a minute. And another guy on a Harley Davidson pulled up that he didn't know. And he said, hey, man, are you okay? Is your bike okay? Do you need any help? And he said, no, no, I'm just waiting for some friends. All right, took off. Two minutes later, another guy on a Harley pulled up. He's like, hey, man, are you okay? Is your bike okay? Do you need any help? He was there for about five minutes before his friends started showing up. Three guys on Harleys pulled over to ask him if his bike was okay. The thing I take from that story, mate, is Harleys aren't very reliable. (laughs) That's one potential thing. Or the perception is. Uh, But these you know, they look out for each other, right? Uh, If you own a Jeep, there's the, the Jeep wave. Jeep owners will wave to each other on the freeways. Yeah, I've got a Jeep in Sarasota, and I can't believe the amount of people that, yeah. that wave to you. And you think to yourself, why are they wa-? When I first got one, I think, why are they waving at me? You own a Jeep, you know, you're a part of the club. <laughs> um, that, yeah. I mean, that's a real benefit. That's a social benefit. Like, there's sure. no secret fraternity of, like, Hyundai sure. Elantra owners that are looking out sure. for each other, right? Sure. So this is only certain brands. Ryan, what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? Uh, I saw an old Vincent Price movie called House of the Long Shadows when I was a kid, and it kept me awake for days. And if you want to be kept awake for days, the one that scared me the most was the Intuitive Customer podcast that's now available on YouTube. It's really oh, scary. I, I want to change my answer. That's actually the scariest thing I've seen, too. <laughs> Absolutely. So... If you are interested in getting scared and watching Ryan and I attempt to do a podcast on YouTube, then just search for the Intuitive Customer Podcast on YouTube and subscribe, won't you? We look forward to seeing you there. If I'm thinking of Irene for the moment, yeah, because what it's making me think is, and this is me with my practical hat on again, 
which is going, you've therefore got to do things, haven't you? Yes. It's all right just going, okay, I'll be a social brand. You can't just go, well, I'm going to be a social brand and do nothing. You've actually then got to do a series of things to support that. And that could be, in this case, as you're describing, you know, running events, having some type of membership-only club or creating that, that whole whole bit around it. So it's an important thing to to pick out. It's a classic stuff around customer experience, which is it's all right saying that you want to do these things, but are you willing to put your money where your mouth is, basically? Exactly. I'm sure we could come up with examples of brands who fell into this, where there were spontaneous communities that grew up around their brand. But you can't rely on being lucky. Like if this is an important part of your strategy, like just as you say, you've you've got to have a plan for it. And so facilitating some kind of social event, realize that this is going to work better for some brands than for others. So it works well for for brands that are like closely tied to identity. Um, we'll get to lifestyle branding in, in a second. Part of the reason that I think, you know, Jeep owners wave to each other is that a lot of people identify as Jeep people. Like this is the kind of person I am. This is very, uh, it works better for like uh, badge brands. So very public yes. brands. It made me think of um, when you said that, it made me think pens. And I thought, yeah, if you're selling a big pen, then you don't want, you, you're not going to have a community for big pens, you know? Big but pens then it made me think, but if you're selling a Mont Blanc or something like that, then maybe that's a, a different thing. So again, it's it's where you're positioning it in the market, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think I would assume that there are communities of Mont Blanc pen owners. But to your point, that needs to then be facilitated, right? So like Apple, you know, the logo is very prominent on computers. Uh, life, from a lifestyle perspective, we all have our computers out in public a lot. Like your coworkers see it, you can, you know, at cafes and things, our phones. But Apple also very cleverly includes Apple stickers with every purchase. So you can put that on your car, you can put that so that you can signal to other people. And people will start conversations over shared brands. And I, I think I've told you this before, but, you know, I, I don't consider an Apple store a store. It feels more like a club. Yeah. It feels like I can go in there and just have a wander around and have a chat to some people and play about with the latest things. And part of that is, um, and again, this is becoming more common now, but we forget about these things. I remember going into the one of the first Apple stores and not having the not having the cash register at the front of the shop and people just wandering around. You know, again, you go in there and they've got um, sessions where they teach you how to use things, et cetera, all free of charge again. all And, and again, that's all about bringing people in and creating that community, isn't it? Yeah, but it obviously comes at a cost. So yeah. it depends on whether people are willing to pay for that. And I guess how they're paying for it is in the cost of the product. I mean, to, to your point, not every brand can develop strong social value, you know? Sure. This needs to be a decision that makes sense to you. Sure, sure. Good. So the, the last one is lifestyle or, or self-expressive value. So this can be a little bit hard to distinguish from, from social value, but the idea here is essentially we're using it to construct a part of our identity. And so... You know, this might be something that we express to others or even just to ourselves, but we identify very strongly with the brand. They become kind of a part of us. 
So back to Harley Davidson, I had an aunt who worked at a Harley Davidson store in uh, Northwest Indiana. So kind of a, a suburb of, of Gary, Indiana in that, that region. She said it was, it was shocking how many women came into the Harley Davidson store to buy branded apparel who did not own a Harley Davidson motorcycle. So they just wanted to be associated with the brand. It, it communicated something to other people and perhaps to themselves about who they were and what they valued and, and kind of what they liked. And uh, that was important to them. So to your, to your point about people who might wear, associate themselves with the Ferrari brand without actually owning one, there was actually an episode of the sitcom Friends where one of the characters started wearing a Porsche jacket and like carrying around a Porsche keychain, but he didn't own a Porsche. Um, and it was just this elaborate ruse to communicate something um, to other people. It was making me making me think of, I don't know if you know, but because um, I know you don't follow soccer, but uh, Lionel Messi, I don't know if you know Lionel Messi. I know of Lionel uh, Messi, yes. You know, one of the greatest soccer players, if not the greatest soccer player that's lived, has just joined um, into Miami. Yes. And you can I, imagine... I think three games as of this recording, and he already almost has the team goal record, like lifetime Probably. goal. I, I think I, I read yeah. that headline. So. Yeah, no, he's an amazing player. I took my son over to Barcelona when he was playing um, over there uh, to see him play. Amazing player. It was making me think how many shirts are now being sold and how many shirts are being sold with Messi on the back. And the the uh, and I was listening to a report the other day that was talking about how the you know the, the club has gone up in this. And, and all the publicity that everybody's getting, even just us talking about it now, that the club is getting because of that. And that sort of comes into that sort of lifestyle thing, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think it could also have a social component. Like there may be people that you can yes. connect to who are also messy yes. fans. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I think that a lot of it for a lot of sports yeah. apparel, it is very much a lifestyle thing. I mean, yeah. one of my favorite bits of trivia is that, uh, Several years ago, the NFL, um, the National Football League, started selling branded coffins. So you can branded be buried coffins. for eternity Bloody in a coffin branded with the, the football team that you <laughs> like. I mean, this is a very much a lifestyle brand for a lot of people. Uh, and, and buried on the pitch. <laughs> it's, it's just there's just there's a big hump in the middle of the I mean, pitch now that people keep there. falling over. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I think a lot of sports thing, uh, branded sports apparel is very much a lifestyle. So let's go back to Irene then. Now we've okay. gone through those four. And again, it's making me think that whilst it clearly would be a struggle to create a lifestyle around a big pen or an, yeah. just a normal pencil, I guess the reality is it's not impossible. It just depends on the amount of effort and lateral thinking you would need to do to, to work it out, wouldn't you? So let me let me step back and and explain a couple of the reasons that I like this this framework, this tiered framework. So the, the first takeaway is that just with the Harley Davidson example, a brand can be good at more than one thing, right? So you could you can think about this ladder as existing, and then at each rung, there's kind of like an indicator bar talking about how good they are. So I think Harley Davidson is good at most of the, the things on the brand level. 
But a brand doesn't have to be. Like in order to create value for a customer, I would argue that they need to be strong on on at least one of those. And there are brands that are just strong on one. So Big Pens might be one where they don't need to be a lifestyle brand to be successful. They're very good at what they do. I use the example of Hanes t-shirts. So Hanes are very innovative in terms of the functional qualities of the t-shirt. So if you've seen any of their old TV commercials, they had Michael Jordan talking about like uh, how they had this new lay flat collar design. So you wouldn't get bacon collar. The idea that if you wash the shirts a lot, then they kind of like wrinkle up and don't look good. They, they were among the first brands to like take out the tag in the back of the shirt. So it's not always digging into your neck, right? So these are very functional improvements of the t-shirt. And that's why you buy a Hanes t-shirt is because it functions well as a t-shirt. And that that's enough. That That's enough to be successful. To be honest with you, by the very definition that I'm saying big pens, and yeah. you understand what yeah. the hell I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's been a show that they're successful at branding. <laughs> 50 years, 80 years. Yes. But the other part of this is brands can start to stack up these benefits. So my advice to Irene is, as you're figuring out who your customer is and, and where you're going to go, give some thought to these different sources of value. Recognize that it's difficult to come out of the gate with a new brand that's good at multiple things on this value scale. Most brands start off trying to establish their value in one place. And in fact, most brands, when they start off, start off in functional. So a lot of the lifestyle brands that we think about today, uh, and I've got a list here that I I talk through, Apple is one. So Apple started as a functional brand, the Apple 2E, like the, those old systems, yep. it was very much about ease of use. Um, yep. And then over time, it laddered up to become a lifestyle brand over time. But it did not start out that way. Patagonia, Timberland, uh, Gillette, uh, Swatch, Starbucks. Starbucks started off as a place to get really great coffee. And then over time, it evolved into a lifestyle brand where people would carry the cups around as accessories and so on. Dove Soap also um, used to be yep. great for moisturizing your skin. And then they they ran the Real Beauty campaign and that became very much a lifestyle. So my advice to Irene is you, you don't need to start off with functional, but you do need to start off somewhere. And often for a new brand, functional makes a lot of sense. You kind of establish your bona fides and then you can start to build up from there uh, and layer on additional. Yeah. But the the key goes back to just going full circle is who's your customer and what do they value, and that's then what you should be building things. Uh, building I mean, things around. There are fun examples of brands that skipped the lowest rung. So uh, DeLorean, the car DeLorean that was popular in the eighties, uh, those were famously terrible cars. They broke down all the time, and yet they were extremely high on lifestyle and social value. They were good at time travel, mate. They were also, thank you for mentioning that. They, <laughs> there was one dimension on which they were functionally superior, and that was they were excellent time at time travel when you got a flux capacitor into them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You see, you forgot all about that. That's, so that, that's an <laughs> exception. So there, there are rare examples of brands that perform well on other dimensions that are not terribly good functionally. But they are relatively rare examples. Usually you need to establish that baseline and then you can start from more. But it's always the balance, isn't it? 
it's the balance between, and the, it would be interesting to to talk about this further, but we haven't got time. But the balance between each of these areas, because as you've been talking about Harley, so in in the UK, one of the challenges with a Harley apparently is the turning circle, because the roads are smaller. Okay, the turning circle of the wheel it's not designed for for tight turns. For, for tight turns, and and this is from a this is from a, a friend of mine who's got a Harley, and he says it's great for long stretches, which is obviously what they have a lot in the states. But you know, uh, in England, it's more of a challenge because you're you're having to constantly uh, go around tighter corners and stuff That's like that. So interesting. So. Yeah, I never I never would have thought about that. But yeah, so functionally, yeah. it can you know it might have a reputation of of not performing as well in some environments. Yeah, but you see, the other interesting thing, this is why the topic's so interesting, actually, is I didn't know that as until he told me. So you need to have a certain level of expertise to be able to even think about that. I mean, you can turn around and go, I mean, I'd heard that DeLoreans weren't, weren't that reliable, but you need to have a certain level of expertise to be able to even understand and think of the implications of of some of these things. So, yeah, so, I, I mean, I, and and we do want to focus on this is like this is the reputational aspect of it. I, I do think that Harley's might have a reputation for not being a very practical mode of transportation. Sure, um, you know they're they're loud, they're bulky. I don't know that that like if you're looking for practicality, right, that that would fit into your reputation. So I I do think that there's there's a reputational aspect to that as well. Sure. And it certainly wouldn't be good for me because I've never, ever driven a motorbike in my life. So there you go. Okay, good. Well, Irene, uh, I hope that uh, has been of of use. The interesting bit for me is that no matter what you do, you're going to build a brand or a reputation. It's the, the interesting bit for me is, are you in control of it? Are you doing it? Is it my, the word I always love is, is it deliberate? Is it a deliberate action that you're taking that supports all of that? So we hope that's been of use and we look forward to talking to you next week. Cheers. Thanks very much for listening to the show today. We really hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, it would be really great if you could leave us a review. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. Intuitive Customer.